You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. Hey, uh, my name's Derek. As he said, I'm the SALT director, which the SALT company is our college ministry here. Um, Basically, what that means is if you're a college student in here, I care about you the most. Um, Aside from my wife, who's actually not even in here. She's in kids. So there's like two of you in here because it's summer, but love you. You're the best. Um, I just got back from assault company training, actually. My cup is very full. Um, All 20 of the assault company staffs got together in Iowa. I just got to see a bunch of the people that discipled me and were some of my best friends that are a lot of them doing college ministry around the country now. as there's 20 salt companies, soon to be 23, as we had one at Ohio State University, Cincinnati, and Georgia Tech this this upcoming fall. So that's exciting stuff. You know, that's a bit about our network. That's, um, you know, we plant in university towns because we love the next generation and want to pass along the gospel to them. So that's my primary responsibility on staff here at Embassy, and I'm happy to do it. Uh, as I said, my cup's super full, so I hope to just, like, fill some of your cup today, Um, but it's a challenging text. Uh, Challenging not in the sense that it's difficult to understand, but challenging in the sense that the religious leaders are going to go to Jesus and challenge him on his authority, and he's going to kind of hold up a mirror and ask them, hey, are you you sure you want to do this? What do you do with the authority that you've been given? And so if you got a Bible, we're in Matthew 21 this morning. Uh, We've been going through a sermon series called Jesus Stories. We looked at the message of Jesus all spring, now we're looking at some of the, the stories of Jesus, his ministry to his men, to the most broken, the most lost, and in this text, the religious leaders of his day, and I, I think it's really applicable for us. You know, yes, I'm obviously a religious leader, but those of us in this room are religiously privileged. We're religious in a sense, of even by the nature of being here on Sunday morning, and so I think this is a mirror not just to the people of Jesus' day, but a mirror to us, and so... Um, the idea I want you to, to understand and pick up on is this idea of, of authority, right? All, there's going to be multiple stories, and frankly, there's more in the text that I'm not even going to get to. Um, but the idea that the religious leaders come at Jesus with is this idea of authority. What authority do you have, Jesus? And he's going to say, what authority do you truly have, human, right? And so this idea of, of authority... Um, I want to make the link between authority and, and story, right? The, the root word of authority is like author. Like the author has the, the utmost say, the preeminent say in how the story unfolds. And Jesus is going to assert himself as the author of life. As we just read from Colossians 1, that perfect text for this morning's opening worship. Jesus is connecting himself to God the Father in a way that makes him superior and ultimate and the authority as the ambassador for heaven on earth, right? And so, if you got a Bible, you can get to Matthew 21. I want to open it with a story, though, um, just, just to, to kind of link this idea of, of authority and story. So my dad, uh, my parents, uh, as far as I know, are not, not believers, not Christians. I got saved pretty radically in college, if you know my story, kind of why I'm doing college ministry. Um, middle of my sophomore year, and I think it was my junior year, probably, maybe my senior year, my parents came to visit me at Iowa State, and I'll never forget because it was uncomfortable as I'll get out, but I had a little sister at the time who was probably 11, Kennedy is her name, and I, I don't get a lot of time with my sister, you know, big brother at college, so I'm like, 
Hey, Kennedy, let's, why don't you run to High V with me real quick? We're going to get some Mountain Dew for this game we're going to be playing later with some of my buddies. Like, literally nothing. No sweat. I'm like, come on, Kennedy. And my dad and mom are like, no, no, she's fine. She can stay here. And I'm like, no, like, me and TJ, we're going to go get some Mountain Dew. Like, come on, Kennedy, let's go. I'm like, no, really, like, don't, no, that's cool. I'm like, Kennedy, come on, just get in the car. We're going to High V to get some Mountain Dew. And I think nothing of this. I think my parents are being weird. And I get back from Hy-Vee with like two 24-packs of Mountain Dew. And my dad, my mom meets me at the door and is like, your dad is fuming. He's calling hotels around Ames to, we're not staying here tonight. I'm like, what is going on? And sure enough, I go upstairs. My dad's on the phone just P-I-S-S-E-D, right? And I'm like, what? what's the problem here, folks? Like, hello, Earth to Joneses. And he's like, I'm not sleeping in a house where there's going to be underage drinking going on, and I can't believe you took your sister to go buy alcohol. I'm like, no, I took my sister to go buy Mountain Dew. Like, I swear to you, look, here they are. Like, I'm not kidding. This is not code. But the narrative that he had in his head was completely off from the narrative that was going on in my head that was, that was actual, Right? He, he equated, because of his time in college, like, if you're talking about going to get some Mountain Dew and playing a game with it later, you're talking about booze, for sure. He didn't have a narrative in his head in college that didn't mean anything else, right? His, his story, his understanding made him, as the person in authority even in my life, as my dad, like, and as our, our, the leader of our family, like, he's making the right call if that's the story going on in his mind, right? Like, we're not staying here, you know, I'm not going to be in a house where there's underage drinking, whatever, and I'm like, no, like, good on you, but that's not what's happening, right? We, were, we had warring narratives, and mine was the actual one because I was driving the boat, but what I want you to see in this text is there's, there's warring narratives going on all the time in all of our lives. The, the predominant warring narrative of my life is, am I the supreme authority or is Jesus Christ? Every day, I have to make decisions that either put Derek as king or Jesus as king, right? And this changes, this alters the story. This is our, our gospel lens. This is, it, it changes everything when we get the story correctly, but there's so many times throughout the day where I think all of us in this room get it wrong because we like to put ourselves as the, the ultimate authority. So you got a Bible, Matthew 21. You can turn there with me. There's kind of three chunks of text. I'm just going to walk us through um, each one. 21, starting in verse 23. When Jesus entered the temple, so this is, side note, earlier in 21, we got the triumphal entry of Jesus. Hosanna, blessed is the the name of Jesus, right? Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and then he flipped over the the money changers' tables. There's, There's already this idea of, like, what authority do you have, Jesus? You've got some following. What's going on here? When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the religious leaders, came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of, of human origin? Kind of weird question, but we'll unpack it a little bit. The religious leaders discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say 
of human origin were afraid of the crowd because everyone considered John to be a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Cop out, we don't no idea. He said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Look, the keystone way to screw up your life, in my opinion, from this text, is to assert yourself and convince yourself that you are the ultimate authority. This is my story for 20 years. In this text, we're going to see this idea of heaven, a father, and a land landowner. We already saw, is this, is this heaven or, or human origin? It's essentially what Jesus wants them to answer in response to questioning his authority. And this is tricky because John the Baptist came and was a nobody, but started preaching this message of repentance, right, and preparing the way for the true Lord that would come. And he had a, a massive following. There was this idea of this good news, like the kingdom is going to come. And because of this following, the religious leaders are like, oh, we don't necessarily agree with what John the Baptist is saying. We weren't baptized by him, and so we, we don't really, we're not really followers of John the Baptist, nor you, Jesus. And this, this idea of John's baptism is centered around this idea of repentance, and clearly it was from heaven, right? John is anointed in a similar fashion to the way Jesus was, and his followers, like, saw something of that, right? But they, they, the religious leaders, what they do, they just punt the question altogether, they have no concern for truth. This is what I point out. They, they don't, they're not concerned with truth. They're concerned with maintaining their status as the authority over the matter, right? And so if you're going to mess up the narrative of your life, in a sense, here's, here's the three points this morning. And the first one's in this text I just read. How we often mess it up is first, we kind of get cute with what's true. We love to make the truth, this like little thing that I can control and I'm above. Truth isn't a, this objective thing to be sought after and attained. It's this thing to decide on for myself and put below me. That's, what, that's what's happening here in this text. To the, to the religious leaders and to me all the time. Truth is not something objective that I stand on, that I get from God's word. It's a mixture of that and like other people's opinions and social you know, validity, right? I, I, that's what I do all the time. You know, I, I, I wish in the heart of hearts that I could just believe every word of this and live it out. And if I did, boy, what an impact. What a non-regrettable thing in light of eternity, right? But the religious leaders, they don't even go to like, oh, I don't know what's true. Like, they don't observe the facts, nothing. They're just like, well, if we say this... You know, that, that might be right, but if we say this, the crowds are going to be ticked. So when we put ourselves in authority, this is what we're tempted to do. We don't know what's true anymore when we're the one in authority. And I want you to know this morning, if you, if you really know nothing else, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for yourself is to look in the mirror and, and question your own actual authority. This is what happened for me in my life that, that it took for me to come to know and fall in love with Jesus, right? Like I had this wake up when I was 20 that was like, hold on, maybe you're not in control, you know? Maybe, 
not only can you not control that girlfriend that just dumped you, you could tear your hamstring tomorrow and you wouldn't have track, this other like idol that you take a lot of pride in. Maybe you could have been born in a different time and place of a different nationality and a, with a different brain and be totally not the person you are today, that you had no say over that, no control. Utterly vulnerable to the hands of my creator, my parents, my time and place in history, and yet taking credit for everything. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is, is question how authoritative you, know, you actually are. How much power do you actually have in the grand scheme of the world? This is what Jesus is trying to, to get the, the religious leaders to question. Because the, the undeniably sticky truth about authorities, it is connected to, to authorship, right? But when I think that I'm the author, eh, a little bit of unholiness is fine. Heaven and hell, not realities. This life is maybe all there is, so I'm just going to lift it up. That's not true. But if you stand on those things, you're not going to live the, the life that... God wants to call you to live and see Jesus for who he is. So, number one, how we screw it up when we put ourselves in authority is we get cute with the truth. Let's look at the next chunk of our text. The parable of the two sons. Jesus continues, what do you guys think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. This reminds me of JP. We got this planning center thing. I said, JP, can you do strike team this morning? I know I asked you to do it last week. Didn't respond to the request on planning center. But without me even prompting, he changed his mind and showed up, which I'm happy for, pal. Thank you. You pleased me as the one scheduling strike team. That's our setup this morning. He didn't want to wake up, but he did. But he did. The other son... The father went to the other and said the same thing. And this man said, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? Obviously, JP, they said. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you all. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. That's the repentance thing, right? That, that was John's message. The Lord's coming. Repent. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. What's, what's, what's Jesus going at here with this idea of their authority being wrong, messing up the narrative? I think the religious leaders messed up two really important R words. They, they struggled with their R's, if you will. Christopher, his brother struggled to say Critterfer, thus Critter was born. I used to struggle with my SHs, so the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You know. That would have changed the plot of the movie, right? A little different narrative. I don't know how, but probably would have. But these are like little kids that are struggling with their R's. This is the religious leaders. I, I willy willy want the big white wed sucker, right? <laughs> like, you know, struggle with their R's. Here's the words. Repentance and righteousness. They get them mixed up. Bad in a way that is, is super dangerous. What do I mean? Righteousness and repentance. They think entrance into the kingdom is dependent on righteousness. And it is. 
but a completely different kind of righteousness that they could never attain for themselves, but what had to be given to them by the grace and mercy of Jesus. They're not serious enough about righteousness, if you will. Because the sort of righteousness that comes from my works and what I do is, we call that self-righteousness, and it's anti-gospel. I never want to preach a message like that in this church, right? That you think, man, grace is something I can earn. Heaven will be open to me if I just do blank, blank, and blank, and Jesus is never in the picture. That's not the gospel. But they, not seeing Jesus as the ultimate authority, saw themselves as this standard of righteousness that, again, we call self-righteousness. And they couldn't even meet the standard. You get the, the story? I will. No show. All talk. No walk. This is the problem with self-righteousness. It's, it's deceiving. It, it leads to deception like, yes, I will, with nothing to show for it. And frankly, on the flip side, repentance is the thing that the tax collectors and the prostitutes understood because they were at the mercy of, of others. And when they saw the good news, they were more quickly able to decipher what it meant for their lives and say, yes, I, I repent. I, I need help. That is fundamental to understanding who Jesus is, is realizing you need help from him. Repentance is a delight for the Christian. I think sometimes we even like belabor repentance. Like, uh, I have to repent again because I have to confess this thing again. You realize that's something that you have that the world does not have that you can not, not supposed to take advantage of, but delight in. Anytime there's repentance in the Old Testament, people actually turn back to the Lord, there's this joy. The, the text we're going to look at next, I mean, talks about this idea of Jesus being the, the stone that the builders rejected, the cornerstone. That comes from Psalm 118 in Isaiah. And Psalm 118 is just this praise of thanksgiving to the Lord. And then he sneaks this in here about Jesus, and Jesus is going to attribute it to himself. Delight in repentance. One of my pastors used to say, don't see repentance as a place you visit, but a place you live. Because if repentance is a true prerequisite to righteousness, then that's what we should be focused on, even and above the righteousness piece. Right? So the religious leaders, in an attempt to assert themselves as authority, to write their own story, they got cute with the truth, they struggle with their R words, and finally... Um, they had a little bit of Lin-Manuel Miranda syndrome. I'll unpack. Let's read the next 13 verses. Listen to another parable. Jesus said, there was a landowner. I said again, there's this idea of heaven and earth, father and son, landowner and tenants. This idea of like authority built in. Listen to another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. That's a lot that the landowner did. I don't know, maybe some of you from Iowa farmers, you know, he planted the corn, fertilized it, put pesticides on it, uh, set up a whole irrigation system, built the grain bin, right, bought the tractors, then leased it. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned the third. That's a bloodbath. Imagine like someone just handed you the keys to Oliver Winery and it was like, I'll be back in a week, just keep being somewhat profitable. And then they sent a guy back in a week and you just murdered him. 
cold blood. Not good. Keep going. Again, he sent another servant, another group of servants, more than the first group, and they did the same thing. Finally, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, surely, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to the others, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, the son, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Jesus asked the religious leaders, and they answer somewhat directly. He will completely destroy those terrible men. That's what any self-respecting landlord would, would do, right? You, you killed all my servants and my son. I will destroy you. And he will lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Lin-Manuel syndrome. What do I mean? Authority's tricky. Um, if you know Lin-Manuel Miranda, he's the guy that wrote Hamilton and also is the lead character in it, which I hate musicals, but not that one because it's very impressive. Um, and it's kind of rappy. It's kind of cool. Um, but Lin-Manuel Miranda, I mean, the reason it's partially impressive is because he wrote the entire thing, um, directs it. I was, he, just, he does the, all of it and is, and is Alexander Hamilton, right? It's super impressive, but... I think that there's something in this almost that, like the narrative he chooses to go at even with Alexander Hamilton almost reveals more about Lin-Manuel as it does Hamilton. Like how do you choose what to say about all of Alexander Hamilton's life and the narrative he chooses is like this, I'm not, I'm going to take my shot, like I'm going to, you know, achieve something of my life and it's, it kind of feels like Lin-Manuel and Hamilton are like the same dude, um, which maybe is just good, good acting. But I think all of us have this temptation as we think about authority to not only be the author that writes the story, but be the hero in the story. And honestly, his voice is kind of bad. Like, there's better guys in that musical. It's like, cast them as the lead next time, dude. But anyways, I don't just want to, like, author my story. Part of the reason I want to author it is because I would love to get the glory in the end for it. We don't want to be just the author. We want to be the lead role. And in the gospel, we are neither. In America, this is incredibly tempting because this American dream has been portrayed to me since I was a kid. What do we ask? What do we ask kids? What do you want to be when you grow up? Side note, God cares so much more about who you're going to be when you grow up than what you're going to be, right? If you left nothing else, maybe you just wake up tomorrow and say, Jesus, who do you want me to be today? Who do you want me to be when I'm 75 holding my wife's hand and we're wrinkly? What sort of person would I be? Then the what doesn't really matter as much. I've been, I've been struggling with this, um, you know, a little bit as I go to spend a week with all my buddies and they're doing big things for the Lord. It's like my future is completely blackness to me, totally dark. I have no idea. I know I'm supposed to be right here for at least five years leading Saw Company Indiana. I feel super clear about that and then black about what's in front of me. Right? And if I spend too much time sitting there, I'll, I'll start to get tempted to write my own story. 
and I'll probably put myself as the hero, not the, frankly, antagonist that we are in the gospel in our sin. But God has been so faithful to me in my life. As I look back at immature, (laughs) cynical, ambitious Derek and see how the fingerprint of God has been all over my life, bringing me to himself. Boy, I should just look through the windshield with faith and joy and hope, knowing that he's got me after these, these five years. Whatever he wants me to do, that's when I'm thinking clearest what I want to do. We all have this perceived level of authority in the wealthiest country that's ever lived, frankly. So I think Jesus would hold a mirror up to us and say, what are you going to do with that? This is the thought that honestly keeps me up at night if, I'm, if there's a thought. God, you've given me so much. So much. What am I going to do with this? Because I'm confident I'll stand before you someday. And the fingerprints will be even more clear than they are to me right now. And while I get up tomorrow and choose to forsake all that to pursue my story, my narrative, I hope not. And frankly, when we do, it leads to a false climax. If we're, the, if we're the false hero in our own narrative that's false from the beginning because we didn't create the world and everything in it and we're not the point, so what if I am the hero? So what if I'm super good at fulfilling the narrative that I write or that you write? you get to the end and realize, oh, for what? If heaven and hell are a reality, if, if truth is really from this, I would way rather you stumble and fumble and fail and fall forward chasing Jesus and not submitting to God's authority half the time because you can't than to be really, really, really good at asserting yourself as authority and doing great things for you. The problem is we, we do have some authority. This is where it's tricky. Like the, the tenants in this last chunk, the landowner is giving them some level of authority. This is the, the, the tension in the garden almost of like, hey, I'm supposed to be this ambassador for you, God. But the temptation is just to jump above that. It's the original temptation, right? But... but like I said, we are given some authority by God. Authority is this position thing more than anything else. The religious leaders in this text do have a position of authority. And so the, the answer is not to forsake all authority. It's to submit to God as your ultimate authority as you live with or without authority in this life. What are you going to do with the, the authority that's been given to you? Are you going to be vulnerable with it? Because vulnerability and authority are not opposed. It's actually in the sweet spot of both of them being lift it up. Do we make a difference? This is, this is Jesus. Before I, I close, I mean, in what areas are you jockeying King Jesus for authority in your life? What would submission to him look like in everything? What would it look like if you just dropped the pen, let him be the author, and write your story? You moved to Bloomington to plant a church. Great. I'm super glad you did. Now you're going to pick the pen up and write a different narrative. 
Are you going to keep letting him turn the page on your life and submit to him in everything? Think, who do you want me to be, Jesus? What sort of person? He cares way more about who you are than what you do for him. And if you operate out of this paradigm that we talk about called the gospel, do you, do you let it drive you? Is this just words or is it reality? A lot of times, if we're honest, it's words. Sometimes when we get clarity and we gather in the presence of believers and get a, a just glimpse of God, it becomes reality. And we're caught up in this supreme story we realize that we didn't ever see before. And if you're reading the F-260, um, man, I was just mind blown by Isaiah this week as we kind of skipped through it. There's this whole gospel on display in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. Right? Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah sees the Lord in glory. And what's he say? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He sees the holiness of God, the seraphim with six wings, two covering their face, two covering their feet, and holy, holy, holy is all they say all day long. This idea of the creator God, the actual author, and Isaiah is, falls on his face and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's a prophet. The lips were the best thing about him, and yet his strength was nothing in the presence of God. This is this idea of God being the creator. In Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded everything in them. This is our God. But, also in Isaiah, here I am, here I am. God says, to a nation that did not call on my name, I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. These people continually anger me to my face. They say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm too holy. These practices are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Look, it is written in front of me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay, says the Lord. The fall of humanity angers the creator God in a way that makes him, what am I to do? But there's promises in Isaiah. This is Jesus. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty hundreds of years before Jesus. He didn't have impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Also in Isaiah, only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary for the two houses of Israel. He will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. The religious leaders missed it entirely. My prayer this morning is that you, you don't. That this church will be built on the foundation that is Christ, the only hope we have, the supreme authority. God is loving creator, supreme authority, final judge. One day we will see him in all his glory just like Isaiah and we will fall on our face 
and say, woe is me. And the only hope we'll have is Jesus Christ, the one who is the rock. Let me pray that we'd be the sort of people that, that understand that, that proclaim that, that let it change us so it can flow out of us into the world. Would you, would you pray with me? God, uh, you're good. You're the sort of authority that the world longed for and needed, and the cosmic story does involve us, but we're not the hero, we're not the center. God, you are. And so we just thank you this morning that you, you bring us into the story that you've been writing from the beginning and will continue to write. And God, we pray that you'd give us faith like the disciples, like Peter in Acts 4, who goes and says with his own mouth, Jesus is the rock to stumble over and trip over. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John, that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they said, wow, these men must have been with Jesus. God, would people say that of us? Would we be bold bold because we realize we're not the hero. The pressure's not on us to write our own stories. God, thank you that you've invited us into something so much better, a, a climax so much more sure and glorious than one we could ever write for ourselves. God, would you help us forsake the things that would tempt us to believe otherwise, would, would tempt us to think that it's better if, if I'm the king, if I'm the author, and would we just humbly and gratefully and worshipfully submit to you this morning. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.